Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament passage of Deuteronomy. The Old Testament passage of Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy in chapter number 10. Deuteronomy and chapter number 10. As we continue with our series, The Life and Ministry of Moses, and we're on our last two messages. We have traveled with Moses from his birth. We watched as God had spared him as a baby and he wrote was... Um, trained by his mother for a few years and then trained in the palace. We watched as he forsook the riches of Egypt, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater. We saw as he made those decisions. We've seen him as he was used to deliver the people out of Egypt as God had rained down plagues. We watched him as he was the leader of two and a half million complaining people for over 40 years. And now as he's 120, they're right beside the bank of the Jordan River, preparing to cross into the promised land, God is turning Moses loose. And we have the book of Deuteronomy, the second telling of the law. But whereas before God had said, Moses, you tell them what to say. Now Moses has the opportunity to preach. And all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we find special and unique names of God. The book of Deuteronomy is filled with special and unique names of God. Now why is that so significant? Because God gives these special, unique names of God so that we, we can understand more about who God is. Each of these names have power. Each of these names give us an understanding of who God is and that we have an understanding. For example, we are familiar with Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. You have Jehovah Nisi, the, God, the Lord is our banner. We've talked about some of these names of God before and now we come to another specific name of God that is a very powerful name of God. And we find it in the book of Deuteronomy chapter number 10. The book of Deuteronomy chapter number 10. And notice with me starting at verse number 12. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 12, 10. Notice with me in verse number 12. The word of God says this. And now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God. To walk in all his ways. To love him and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart. And with all thy soul to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God. The earth also with all that therein is. Only the Lord hath a delight in thy fathers to love them. And he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. For the Lord your God is God of gods, and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty, 
and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and the widow, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave and swear by his name. He is thy praise, and he is thy God, and hath done for thee these great and terrible things which thine eyes have seen. Thy fathers went down into Egypt with threescore and ten persons, and now the Lord thy God hath made thee as the stars of heaven." For multitude. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a name of God that we find in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 10? The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10, and notice with me in verse 17. Deuteronomy, chapter 10, and verse 17, where it says, A great God. A great God. And with this great God, we also have the description of before it, meaning that He is the God of God and Lord of Lords. He is the God of God and the Lord of Lords. When we speak about God being the great God, we're referring to him as the God of gods and the Lord of Lords. If you don't mind, let's talk to this God now. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. A God who loves us so very much. A God who is great, amazing, terrible, wonderful. A God who strikes awe. A God who created the world. A God who owns everything. A God who loves us when we're unlovely. As we approach you now, we're just asking that you would just give us wisdom and discernment. That you would help illuminate our eyes through your precious word. That we could have an understanding of what this means. That you are the God of gods. The Lord of Lords. You are the great God. Again, with a name so wonderful, with you being so powerful, my human lips would fail to be able to describe it. I, I just do not have the knowledge, the intellect, the oratory skills to get across how wonderful you are. But that's something I could trust your Holy Spirit to do. That you would reveal yourself, illuminate yourself. Let us know more about you. The best I know how I surrender myself to you. And ask that you would please use me in a special way. I'm just your instrument. You do the work. And you show who you are to these good folks. And help us to respond properly to whom you are. And in Jesus name we pray. Amen. We have this name of God here. A powerful name of God. He is a great God. And this idea of great here is going to carry in definition the idea of vast in power and excellence. The word great would carry the idea of supreme. He is the supreme God. He is the excellent God. He's the God who is full of power. And you could summarize it like this. He is the God of all gods. He is the Lord of all lords. And later on the Bible adds this declarative statement. He is the king of kings. God is the great God. He is supreme. There is no God like him. There is no king like him. There is no Lord like him. There is no master like him. There is nothing like him. Nothing approaches him. He far exceeds them all. This is what this name a great God means. It is carrying the idea that he is above all. He is master of all. He is 
the Lord of all lords. The idea of Lord here would carry the idea of master. He is the boss of all bosses. He is the king, the ruler over all other kings and rulers. He is the God over all other gods. There's nothing that approaches him. He is supreme in all things. So the first thing I want to bring to your attention is who is this king of kings? Who is this king of kings? How does the Bible describe this God, this king of kings? Well, if you don't mind, we're going to come back to the book of Deuteronomy in just a second. But I'd like to show you in the New Testament exactly who we are talking about. Notice with me as we take our first pit stop in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we just want to be very clear. Who are we talking about when we're talking about the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods, this great God? Well, the Bible describes Jesus as being the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We know that he and God are the same person, different aspects of the same God. And the Bible has quite a bit to say in the New Testament dealing with this great God, this King of kings, this Lord of lords. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we come to our first pit stop in the New Testament. 1 uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, notice with me in verse 14. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 14. That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only Pontinent, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. So when we're defining this, who is this king of kings? Well, of course, First uh, Timothy here identifies this God of gods, this king of kings, this Lord of lords as Jesus. Notice as it defines Jesus in verse number 15, which in his, this is Jesus Christ, he shall show who is the blessed and only continent. This word continent is a very powerful word. It's used here and it carries the idea of one who is mighty. It's the same idea of the great God. It's the one who is mighty. The literal idea of it is, uh, puts a semblance of a dynasty. You know, if you had a, a several kings who ruled in a row, you would call that a dynasty uh, of the same family. Well, here, Jesus is his own dynasty because he's from everlasting to everlasting. He'll never get old. He'll never take a nap. He'll never have to step down from the throne. He'll never grow senile. He'll never... Uh, be discounted for any reason. He'll never be dethroned for any reason. And it carries the idea that Pontinent, uh, with the idea of a dynasty, has the literal idea of a mighty prince. This Pontinent is the mighty one. He's the mighty prince. He's the dynasty of himself. He is the great one. He's the mighty one. And of course, the Bible here describes him the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Verse 17 gives more description with what I've already said. Who only, notice that word only, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach to, whom no man can see, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. This is describing God Almighty, who by the way Jesus is, God Almighty. 
He has all power. He is the one, only one that is immortality. He's the one who has been from everlasting to everlasting. That's a phrase used in Psalm 90, which carries from eternity past to eternity future. Jesus is God. God is God. He's never stopped. He's the one who created everything. Even the angels had a creation date. The world had a creation date. We had a creation date. The thing that predates creation is God. And Jesus is God. He predates creation. He is the God of gods. He is the one who created everything. He is the Lord of lords. He's the mighty prince. He is a dynasty that will never end. He is the mighty one. As we continue on, we come to the book of Revelation in verse in chapter 17. And we see another reference of this king of kings and lord of lords in the book of Revelation chapter 17. In the book of Revelation chapter 17. Now, what's happening at the end of the book of Revelation in the period that we're here is that it's at the very end of the tribulation period. At the very end, the people of the world are going to gather together and they're expecting to fight against Jesus Christ. Now, all throughout the book of Revelation, the name of God that is used foremost is the Lamb. And of course, when you think about a lamb, you're thinking about a helpless, defenseless animal. In fact, in Revelation chapter 5, you have the people who are hiding in the dens and caves of the mountains and following us, following us, and hide us from the wrath of the lamb. Well, normally you're not worried about if a lamb's going to bother you. You're not worried about if a lamb's going to stomple you. You're not worried about if he's going to trample you, if he's going to run you over. Lambs are not what you think of as a violent animal. But they said, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. You understand, these people knew who it was that was bringing down this judgment. But still, they refused to turn from him. And all throughout the book of Revelation, this is the name of God that's primarily used, the Lamb of God. But still using the idea of the Lamb of God, when Jesus came the first time, he submitted himself to human judgment. He submitted himself to the death of the cross. He surrendered himself meek and mildly. But when he comes the second time, he is not coming to die. He is coming to rule. And so the world is going to come and they're, they're expecting to fight against a weak, submissive God. But that is not what they get. Notice with me in the book of Revelation chapter number 17. And notice this in verse 14. Revelation 17 and verse 14. These shall make war with the lamb. Now notice the, la the word there. Lamb. They're expecting to fight against the lamb. And the lamb shall overtake them. Why? For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And they are with him are called and chosen and faithful. They're expecting to fight against the Lamb. They're expecting a submissive Savior. They're not expecting the Lord of Lords. They're not expecting the King of Kings. They're not expecting Jesus to come with might and power. We could see this carried out even more in the book of Revelation chapter 19. Which is covering, uh, 17 is giving you a foreshadow of what's going to happen. 19 is what actually happens. So all of the world has gathered together. They're going to fight against Jesus. They're going to declare war against him. They have some idea that they're going to win against Jesus. But Jesus comes in Revelation 19. Notice with me starting at verse 11. Revelation 19 and verse number 11. And I saw heaven 
opened. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven, that's us, followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepresses of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he had on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. When Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to defeat the armies. And by the way, we're traveling with him. And you say, what are we going to do? Nothing. Because with just one word, he's going to defeat all the armies of earth. Just one word. He's going to defeat them all by himself. We're just going to be there for the ride watching him do it. And then as he establishes kingdom. Why he? Why could this all happen? Because of who he is. Jesus Christ is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. He is the great God. And all of the armies of heaven, uh, earth cannot stop him. All of man's imaginations cannot prevent him from coming. Nothing that this world can come up with can overthrow God. Because he is King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. You may have some peep squeak ruler who raises his fist up to heaven and said, God, I will not have you rule over me. But you understand how small that guy is compared to the God who has all of the universe in his hand, the God who has all of time within his palm, how small that king is compared to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There's nothing some peep squeak man can do. Nothing a president, nothing a prime minister can do compared to this God. Jesus Christ is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the God of Gods. Now as we turn back to the book of Deuteronomy and chapter number 10, God takes some time as he's allowing Moses to preach. What do we know about this great God? How does this great God affect us? What does it mean that God is? is a great God. As we turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 10, I'd like to take this passage here and I'd like to show you that question, what does it mean that God is a great God? When we talk about that he's king of kings and lord of lords, what does that mean? Why is it that he is called lord of lords? We identified him as the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. But let's go back what does it mean, this name of God, that he is a great God, that he is king of kings, God of gods, Lord of lords, what does it mean? What does it affect? What does it entail? What is the description? Well, first of all, I want to show you as we talk about what does it mean that he's a great God, is that God is worthy of our love and thus our obedience. That if God is king of kings, Lord of lords, God of gods, if he is the great God, God is worthy of our love and thus our obedience. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse number 12. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? 
All right, so that's a good thing. What does God want of us? What is it he requires of us? If he is God of gods, king of kings, Lord of lords, what does he require of us? What does he want from us? To fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all of his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. What does it mean to us that God is the great God? Well, if he is the God of gods, if he is the king of kings, if he's the Lord of lords, if he's the boss, if he is this amazing God, we should love him. He created us. He died for us. He did so much for us. Our response is we should love him. And by the way, if he is king of kings, Lord of lords, uh, God of gods, all of those have the idea to do with authority, right? If the king stood before you, an earthly king, and said, go do something. And it wasn't illegal, immoral, and biblical. But we looked at him, stuck our thumb out at him, and yeah. Would that go well? But you understand, this is a pipsqueak king. Why do we do that to the God of gods? If he tells us something to do, we should have no problem saying yes, no problem, yes, sir. You understand, he is the king of kings. This carries the idea of, of authority. If he tells us to do something, our response is to love him and obey him. If he is truly king of kings. It is ludicrous, ludicrous that when God gives us something to do and we say no. It's absolutely ludicrous because we forget who we're talking to. He is the king of kings. The Lord of Lords. He is this great God. This powerful God. That no king could stand before. Why would we even imagine saying no? I don't care what you say God. I'm not going to do it. That's silliness. We forget who we're talking to. We're talking to this great God. What else does it mean that God is a great God? Well not only should our response be that we love him. And that we obey him. But we also understand that God owns everything. God owns everything. Notice with me in verse 14. Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God. The earth also and all therein is. Here it's describing that God owns everything. It starts off by describing the heavens. We know in the Bible there are three different heavens. There is the heavens where the birds fly. It's the atmosphere. There are the heavens where the stars and the moon hang. That's space. And then there's the third heaven, which is the uh, place of heaven. That's where we want to go to. This is where God resides, where God dwells. And it says, behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the possessive The Lord's thy God. Guess who owns heaven? All three of them. God does. But God just doesn't own heaven. What else does he own? He owns the earth also with all that therein is. There's a principle of ownership. God owns everything. Why does he have the right to own it? Because he made it. He made everything. He made the oxygen you're breathing. He made the chemicals that make up your body. He makes up everything. He owns the paper, the gold that your paper used to be backed up off. He he owns everything. In fact, it talks about later on in the Psalms that he owns the gold and the silver. We sing a song that God owns the cattle of a thousand hills. My pastor used to say not only does he own the cattle of a thousand hills, he owns the taters underneath the hills too. 
He owns it all. In the book of Ezekiel, it says that God owns all the souls. God owns everything. So when we refer to him as the great God, we're recognizing him as the registered owner of everything, including me and including you. And because he owns us, he has every right to do with what he wants with what he owns. If he told us to do something, we don't have the option of saying no because he owns us. Our response is yes, sir. Why? Because he's the great God. There's an expectation he owns everything. He has every right to do with what he wants because of his authority. He owns everything. So when we refer to God as the great God, which carries the idea that he's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods, we know that first of all, our response to him, because he's the great God, should be out of love and obedience. We also recognize that God owns everything. And by the way, if he owns everything, he has every right to do with what, what he owns. He is the authority. He is the great God. There is nothing outside of God's control or authority because he owns it all. He owns it all. He owns everything. Notice as we go on, not only do, is God worthy of our love and our obedience, not only does God own everything, but something wonderful, God loves his people. God loves his people. Notice with me in verse 15. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them. This is a cool phrase. We say it like this, and nowadays, you have a face that only a mother could love. God says, guess what? Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them. No one else would love them, but God did. You know, there is plenty of times when we were unlovely. There may be plenty of times even this last week where you were unlovely. But God loved you anyways. God had a delight in you Oh, what a wonderful thing. He delighted in us. Only the Lord had to delight in thy fathers to love them. This idea of delight would carry the idea that not only does God love you, he likes you. Amen. We all have people that we love, but we don't like. You just got through Christmas. You could probably attest to that. You had people that you love, but you didn't really enjoy spending time with them the last couple of weeks. God doesn't just love us. He likes us. He likes who you are. He delights in you. You make him smile when he thinks about you. Remember that God is an emotional God. This idea, he delights in you. He has an emotional response because of you. Think about that. We all have emotional response to certain people. There are certain people that you don't have the right emotional response to. But God delights in you. When no one else would. When no one else liked you. When you didn't even like yourself, God delight in you. That's a great God. A great God could only love me at times. No one else did. But God did. He delighted in me. Notice as it goes on. Verse 15. Only the Lord had to delight in thy fathers to love them. And he chose their seed after them. Even you above all people as it is this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Be no more stiff-necked. The response to this is because of this, because he loves us, because he's that great of a God to love us when we're unlovely, stop being stiff-necked. 
that has the idea to arch your back, to say, no, God, I'll do whatever I want. How can we do that when we realize he loved us so much when we were unlovely? The Bible talks about in the New Testament, Romans 5, 8, for God commendeth his love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us when we were no good, rotten sinners, nothing redeemable about us. And he still proved his love towards us. He died for us. How can we say no to this God who loved us when no one else would or no one else could? That's part of this great God. Who is this great God? What is our response to this great God? This God who is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, God of Gods. That God is worthy of our obedience and our love. That God owns everything. That God loves his people. But notice this. God is over all. God is over all. Notice with me in verse 17. For the Lord your God is a God of gods. And Lord of lords. A great God. A mighty. This word mighty carries the idea of power. But notice this next word. And a terrible. This is another name of God found throughout scripture. The terrible God. Now our English language has kind of modified over the years. And so when we carry the idea of terrible. We carry the idea of like. Uh, oh that's awful. That's a horrible thing. But the word terrible. Uh, it, back when the authorized version was translated. Carry the idea of awesome. Awe striking. This terrible God carries the idea of this God who strikes awe and wonder to impress with solemn awe and reverence. You understand the thought of God should still make you go wow. We should never get to the place where God is commonplace, where God no longer impresses us. Let me tell you, part of him being a terrible God is not talking about how awful he is. It's talking about this is a God who should still strike wonder. And awe into us. If you get to the place where God's no longer a big deal. Ah, yeah, I've heard it all before. Let me tell you, there's something wrong with your heart. There's something bad wrong with here. You're not seeing this wonderful God. You look and makes you go, wow. Again, go back to how unlovely you were. And God still chose to love you. That should make you go, wow. You think about Jesus who was God, robed in flesh, and he chose to leave the glories of heaven and dwell among sinful, rotten, nasty humans. Remember, the humiliation of Christ did not begin at Calvary. It began at his birth because he had to humble himself to be around us sinful men. That's all striking. Why would a God come down and die for us? Why would a God dwell among us? Why would a God put up with me? Why hasn't he struck me down with lightning? Because I deserve it. What a wonderful God. That should still make you go, wow. God should still impress you. Isn't it amazing how sometimes we pray and then we're surprised when God answers our prayer? God should still put wow into you. Wow, God answered the prayer. I didn't realize this was going to happen. But look, I prayed and I didn't realize. But God did it anyways. God should still impress you. That's part of him being a great God. He should still make you go, wow. He is that wonderful God. Something else that we understand about this God is that 
God is worthy of our love and our obedience. He owns everything. God loves his people. God is God overall. But we also understand God loves those who are unlovely. God goes back to this thought again. Notice with me in verse 18. He doth execute the judgment over the fatherless and the widow and loveth the stranger. Look at these three groups of people. These are the three outcasts of a society. The fatherless. Look, there's a kid who doesn't have a daddy. Whether the daddy's uh, passed away, whether the daddy ran away. Here's a child that's raised without a daddy. And even in our own society, we look at them and we have pity on them. We look at them as outcasts. You think of the widow. The widow who lived all these years with her husband and now he's gone and she's trying to survive by herself and she's struggling in this world and it feels like no one's checking up on her. Everyone forgot about her and she's trying to move forward. The widow and then the stranger. The stranger is the one that doesn't belong. And there's a lot of people that don't belong. We all have our idea of what people should be like. And if they don't look like, if they don't check our boxes, they don't look the same shape, if they don't uh, look the same way, act the same way, we reject them. The stranger. The three groups of people that are neglected by society. Pushed away, ignored, neglected. And yet, God loves them. He doth execute judgment on the fatherless and the widow And loveth the stranger. In giving him the stranger food and raiment. Love ye therefore the stranger. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. God has given us a commandment. That we should respond to others. With the same love that God has for us. We should love the stranger. We should love the unlovely. There's one thing about good old fashioned Baptist churches. Uh, We know that there's polar bear Baptist churches. Where people go in and they get frozen out. But there should be something about church that accepts people and loves them and helps them on. I heard a preacher say, yeah, people comment about all the strange people we got in our church. He gave a story of a, he had a guy who um, wasn't quite all there, but he fell in love with souls. But he was a taxi driver. And on Sunday morning, he would take his taxi and sit out there and someone will say, hey, take me to the airport. He says, listen, I'll take you wherever you want and I'll take you for free, but first you got to go to church with me. Well, I can't go to church. I've got to decide, well, then this isn't for you. This is Jesus' taxi today. And he would wait until he finally got someone he could take to church. And sometimes it would be at the very uh, <laughs> uh, last minute and the preacher would already be starting in the sermon, but this guy faithfully every Sunday would bring someone with him and he would never sit in the back. He would drag the guy all the way up front and as the preacher's preaching, he's waving at the preacher, I got one preacher, I got one, and sit him up there. We need people like that. You know, people like that would be frozen out of a lot of churches. Bring them in. Take people from where they are and move them forward. Love on them. That's what people need is love. To help them out. God loves those who are strangers. Those who are lovely. And our response because of that God is that we should love them too. And work with them. Try to help them up. What else? Because God is this great God. He is the God of God. The King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. What else? How else should we respond? God should be our only God. God should be our only God. Notice in verse 20. Thou shall fear the Lord thy God. 
him shall thy serve, and to him shall thou cleave and swear by his name. Notice that word cleave. The word cleave is the only word in the English language that it's its own opposite. It has the idea of separating two things, to cleave it into two. It also carries the idea to cleave unto, to hold onto. It's the only word in the English uh, language that it's its own opposite. Well, in this case, we're supposed to cleave ourselves from the world and cleave unto our God. That thou shalt cleave and swear by his name. Meaning that he's our only God. We cleave ourselves from any other. This is our God. He's the one I'm clinging to. I separate myself from it all. He's my only God. Why? Because he's the God of God and King of Kings. Why would I go to a secondary or a third dairy or some other God down the list? Why wouldn't I go to the very best God, the most powerful God, the God who could do it all? Why would I settle with some God who can't do it all? I should go to him. He is the great God. Why would I settle with something else when the best, the only, the greatest is available? Go with the greatest, the only. There's something else that we find in here about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, this great God. How should we respond to this great God? What is our reaction to this great God? That God is worthy of our love and thus our obedience. God owns everything. He loves his people. God is God over all. He loves them that are unlovely. He should be our only God. The last thing I want to show you in this passage here is that God is the God of miracles. God is the God of of miracles. Notice with me, if you don't mind, verse 21. He is thy praise. He is thy God. He hath done for thee these great and terrible. Notice that word terrible again. That carries the idea of awe-striking, awesome, that wonder-making, that great and terrible things which thine eyes have seen. Thy fathers went down to Egypt with three score and ten persons. And now the Lord thy God had made thee as the stars of heaven for a multitude. Let's take the last one first. Seventy people went down to Egypt. And now they've grown to two and a half million people. By the way, God made that promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And it's happened. Two and a half million people. That's a lot of people to count, by the way. Probably more than you want to take the time to count. You just say, hey, there's a lot of people out there. 70 to a lot of people. More than you want to count. And now, how did God deliver them? He sent 10 plagues upon Egypt. These miracle plagues. These ones that even Pharaoh and his magicians could not counter. They were able to duplicate, but they could not counter. You remember that he turned water into blood. Well, sure, the Egyptians can turn water into blood too. But guess what? They couldn't cure it. They couldn't fix it. Sure, they could send more frogs up, but they couldn't send them away. God could. God was able to show he had perfect power over bringing them and sending them away. But then there came a place where they couldn't do anything. When the uh, dust turned to lice, they could not do anything. When God caused darkness to go across, they couldn't do anything. When the fire and hail came down, they couldn't do anything. When the firstborn died, they could do nothing. God was God over all. Then they went and God is leading them through a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. Only God can do that. 
to protect them, to keep them safe. Then he opened up the Red Sea. Remember when they did the Red Sea, you had two and a half million people plus all of their stuff that had to cross overnight in a certain amount of period of time. In order for that to happen, you had to have 2,000 people going across at the same time, 2,000 abreast. In order for that to open up, the Red Sea had to open up to a space of five miles. You understand? This is a big God. You can't duplicate this. And they watched it. They went across the Dead Sea. Imagine the people in the middle, five miles, two and a half miles on either side. You couldn't even see the edge of the Red Sea in a lot of parts. They're crossing on dry land. Then God brought down manna from heaven every day. You can't make that happen. But God brought it down. God put water and he brought it from a stone in the desert. God was amazing in all the things that he did. He is a God of miracles. Remember our theme for this year. With God, all things are possible. Who is this God, this King of Kings, this Lord of Lords? This is a God who all things are possible. He is the miracle working God. How should I respond to him? I should respond to him like he's able to do it. God can change someone's heart. He can revolutionize someone's life. He can answer our prayers. He could provide for us. He could give us what we need. He could fix situations. God is able. You understand, if you truly believe that God is the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that also means that we recognize that God can do anything. Amen. And you can trust him. Are you trusting this God of gods? Sometimes we live our lives as if God is not there. Think about the, um, the two people walking on the road to Aramea. Jesus has died and he ascended. They have heard the account how the women went to the, to, the, um, to the tomb and found it empty. They have heard Peter and some of the disciples talk about they had also went. But yet they're walking to the road of Aramea all sad and pitiful. And Jesus comes up and disguises himself and says, hey guys, what's the matter? Haven't you heard about the things that are going on? The one that we had hope on, he died. But the people have said that the tomb is empty and he's risen again. And, we're, and they're acting sad. Isn't that good news? Shouldn't you be excited? That's, isn't that what he said? But they're living their life like they didn't have a risen Savior. They're living their life like, you know, it'd be one thing to be sad if you didn't hear the news. But they heard the news twice that the tomb was empty. And they're still sad, still pathetic. You know why they should have been happy? Because their God was able. And yet we walk around defeated. We walk around pitiful. It's so horrible. I don't know if I'm going to survive. And you said that this week. God is God. We don't have to live pathetic lives. Our God's on the throne. We should live like he is able to do anything. With God, all things are possible. That word means, that word all means all. All things. He could do the impossible. Do you believe he could do the impossible? Yes. 
then we should rejoice in our God because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Our strength comes from God who is able to do anything. Our God who is God over all. Our God who owns everything. Our God who could do the miracles. Our God is great. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Then if you believe it, you can trust him. There is nothing too big for our God. There's nothing too small for our God. He is this great God. He can do it all. But the thing is, can you trust him? Maybe this week you found yourself not trusting in God. You look at the circumstances and you say, it's just so horrible. It can't. Have you taken time to go to God and say, God, this is nothing to you. I love the story of the Syrophoenician lady who went up to Jesus and said, please heal my daughter. And you know what Jesus did? He answered her not a word. Finally, she keeps bugging Jesus. And Jesus talks to his disciples when they said, send her away. And he says, it's not meat for um, the master to give uh, the food to the dogs. He just called her a dog. First he ignored her. Then he called her a dog. And then what she did is say, Lord, all I need is a crumb. Just a crumb. Do you know what God's miracles in our life is? Just a crumb. We're not asking something that's going to tax him. Something that's going to waste his energy. Run down his battery. We're asking for a crumb. That's how great our God is. Your big request that is too big for you. Is nothing but a crumb to God. Because he's that great God. Can you trust him? You know what you may need to do today is come ask God for crumbs. God, I need a crumb of your power to take care of this situation. I can't do it. It's too big for me, but it is nothing to you. Nothing for you to handle. Nothing but a crumb. That's all we are as beggars asking for crumbs. But our God is able. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your week has been like. But our God is big enough to answer everything. We don't have to live defeated lives because our God is great. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three oh eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three oh eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.